Welcome to Fanboy and the Hater, a podcast hosted and produced by Mike Hall and Jim Harris, where we discuss the best and worst in movies, TV, and pop culture, edited by Jim Harris, and music by Mike Hall. This episode of the Fanboy and the Hater includes even more profanity than usual. It also includes language and topics that some may find offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is fucking advised. You know, Jim, I've been thinking. I know, that's, that's dangerous and painful. But yeah, I've, I've been thinking. We've got great athletes, right? And they play sports for millions of people to enjoy watching. They make billions of dollars. But the best athletes, they go to the Olympics. Maybe once or twice and are generally forgotten by most, and most people don't even know their names, right? Oh, yeah. We've got great actors in it that entertain millions in movies and TV shows, which is kind of our bread and butter. Their name's known by everybody. They make millions of dollars. But the best actors tend to do stage plays for select audiences and are relatively unknown by most, right? Correct. Really funny people are put into TV shows and movies, but usually as bit parts and are generally kind of shit on for not being as good as anybody else. But the funniest people tend to share their talents in comedy clubs for select audiences and maybe get a one-hour special every couple years. We're talking about sitcom. There's sitcom. Stand-up. We're talking about stand-up. You ruined the punchline. I did. You had that long, drawn-out setup. And then you ruin the punchline. Which is why I don't do stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, you seem to be fairly new to stand-up. I recommended this topic because you have mentioned on multiple occasions that you love stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. And the more I think about it, I don't really watch a lot of stand-up comedy. But like when I try to think of funny people, when I try to think of just comedians... A lot of them actually are stand-up comedians, but I was surprised at how many people I've never actually seen do stand-up, although their background or how they were discovered or how they got into the industry came from stand-up comedy. I've seen a lot more people in other things like sketch comedy, sitcoms, movies, late-night television. I haven't really seen a whole bunch of stand-up, so I don't watch it very often and it's not really like a go-to I want to laugh I don't think of going to watch stand-up fair enough but you do you watch a lot of stand-up oh yeah I I have for a long time watched stand-up I started into the comedy world actually through In Living Color and the main ones that that attracted me there were uh, Jim Carrey, Damon Wayans, Jamie Foxx, Chris Rock and I found out they're stand-up comedians And it was kind of through like Comedy Central would have specials every once in a while. I would catch some of them every once in a while. And I was like, the stand-up is so much better than the sketch comedy. And then I would see some of the other people like David Allen Greer, Tommy Davidson, and all the other Wayans's. And they also did stand-up. 
but they were much better at the sketch than they were at the stand-up. And that made me kind of start looking at it a little deeper than that and really pushing into the stand-up because there's such a big difference between like sitcoms, sketch comedy, and stand-up comedy. It's all funny. It all has similar delivery, but they're completely different worlds. They're completely different worlds, and stand-up is also probably one of the most honest or open forms. There are jokes that can only be told in stand-up. Right. There are some topics that can only be discussed in stand-up. But before we get back to that, it's like, I don't know, some of it might be like our differences in age. I was a kid in the 70s and a teenager in the 80s. So growing up, I mean, obviously I was not old enough to go to a comedy club, but this was, I grew up before the internet, before even like Comedy Central and, and a lot of like basic cable channels. So I was growing up, I knew funny people and I just never knew that they had, that they were stand-up comedians, even going like to like my youth, like really not super old, but older examples, like the, like Bob Newhart. Mm -hmm. My parents knew Bob Newhart as a stand-up comedian who later did sitcoms. I only saw the sitcoms, Bill Cosby. My parents loved Bill Cosby. My parents saw Bill Cosby, not in person, but they saw Bill Cosby do stand-up. I only saw Bill Cosby on The Cosby Show. I had no idea that he was a stand-up comedian. So there were a lot of people who I saw the sitcom before I even knew they were a stand-up comedian. And then the only other you mentioned in Living Color, I also did watch that. And some of the people that you mentioned in there, that's where I first saw them as well. But for me, it was more Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And that's where I, I would see people who would go on to star in movies, but also start out in Saturday Night Like Eddie Murphy. I probably first saw Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live. I didn't have no idea that he did stand-up. I, didn't, I don't think I really even understood what stand-up even meant. Like, I remember The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson was the only place growing up that I actually saw what we would call a stand-up comedian. I don't know how much that term was used, but like the opening monologue on late night television, like John, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, was basically a very, very short stand-up routine. Yeah. He's coming out speaking to a live audience, making a couple of jokes before the show started. But the ones that I really took note of is on a regular segment on his show, he would have actual stand-up comedians come out and perform really short sets, like two to three minute sets of stand-up comedy. And then they would go over and have like a short one to two minute interview with Johnny Carson. Maybe. If they were really good, they would get over there. Yes, exactly. They, they would come out to do a two, three minute set. If they bombed, they didn't get invited over to the desk. If they did good, they got invited over to the desk and they sat down and Johnny would talk to them for a minute or two minutes at the end of the show. With almost always the question, so how did you get started in stand-up comedy? But I couldn't even tell you the names of the people. I know I saw stand-up comedians on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I could not tell you who any of them were. I probably even saw some of the people who got sitcoms actually do stand-up on Johnny Carson, and I don't remember. Yeah. See, and it, it's weird. Like, you mentioned, like, like Cosby and, and Newhart. And somehow I knew that they did stand-up at the same time that I watched their shows. And I don't know how I knew that. Because I'd never seen them do stand-up. But somehow I knew it. I don't know why. 
maybe I did see it somewhere, or maybe my my grandpa told me or something. Because I know there's there were some stand up comedians that my grandfather really liked, like Newhart. So maybe I got introduced at a young age where you know before my memory starts. That's possible. But I just know that I was always really drawn to stand up because it's more raw and seems more real. And it kind of goes into you know I was also a fan of SNL. But I was more of a fan of In Living Color and Mad TV because it seemed more raw and it seemed more real. And that's, again, where the differences in our ages came out. I also saw Mad TV and In Living Color, but later. Yeah. I forget what years they came out. They weren't around when I was a kid. The only sketch comedy that I had access to was Saturday Night Live. Mad TV and In Living Color were definitely more raw. I saw them both, but they were not like options for me when I was a kid. Yeah, and I, I think I was probably, I'm guessing probably around 11 or 12 when I first started watching it. And yeah, I was just blown away. I mean, especially Jim Carrey. I drove everybody nuts by imitating Jim Carrey all the time, especially after like Ace Ventura and The Mask came out. I just looked it up, sorry. 1990 is when In Living Color came out. I was already in college at that point. I was eight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember Jim Carrey, Fire Marshal Bill. I did terrible impressions of Fire Marshal Bill. Yeah. I had no idea. I think Jim Carrey did stand-up? Yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, I saw him on In Living Color, and I saw his movies. That's all I know. He did a couple sets with Damon Wayans, and then they did the movie uh, Earth Girls Are Easy together with jo- Jeff Goldblum. And then when they were starting In Living Color, Damon Wayans like, we've got to get this guy. And he got brought in. Yeah, and then Mad TV didn't come out until 1995. So by that time, I was in my mid-20s. So this is like, I missed... You had stuff around when you were a teenager. Yeah. That was better than SNL. <laughs> I don't think I watched Mad TV until much later. I, did, I didn't... I watched reruns of it. I never really saw it when it was on. I actually remember catching most of it when it was on. Because again, at that time, I was in college when both Mm -hmm. and living color and mad tv well i was just i was out of college by the time mad tv came along but pretty much my only thing was late night tv the tonight show and saturday night live for something that wasn't a sitcom the only exception to that is like i saw people do jokes like on the tonight show or or some other thing like obviously youtube wasn't a thing back then so i didn't see video clips of something but the first actual stand-up comedy special. I believe the first one that I ever saw was Eddie Murphy. I saw Eddie Murphy, Delirious, and Raw. And they were on HBO. And these were in the 80s, like 1983, 1987. So I was still a teenager, but I remember seeing them and I actually had cassette tapes, that's how old I am, of those two stand-up specials, of Eddie Murphy's Delirious and Raw, and they were fucking hilarious. Now, I knew who Eddie Murphy was from Saturday Night Live and the movies he was making at the time, Trading Places, 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop. Mm -hmm. But he's the first person that I at least remember that stand-up comedy is when I saw Eddie Murphy. I don't think I ever watched those until much later. Okay. I knew Eddie Murphy from Beverly Hills Cop, and then later found out the rest of it. I didn't watch those specials anyways. I'd, I'd seen some other stuff, but I didn't see those until much, much later. I couldn't even begin to tell you the first stand-up I watched. Because I know we had HBO, so I watched some stuff on that. Once we got Comedy Central, I watched some stuff on that. 
I honestly think the, the first stand-up comedian that I remember really liking specifically for stand-up by itself was probably actually Dane Cook. Oh. And he burnt out fast. But when he was big, he was... And, and that was when... But that was when Comedy Central first started really doing... Or at least when we had access to it, doing their specials. And he was one of the main ones they played. And it was about all we had available to us. Yeah, that was 1991 when Comedy Central came out. But we didn't get Comedy Central where I was until much after that. It was late 90s before we got access. Okay, so like that for me, it was like in my college and post-college years. That's when I started to see, because again, this is also long before Netflix came along. Other than Eddie Murphy, probably the next actual stand-up that I saw was probably Comedy Central's. They would have like short clips of people doing stand-up. And then every now and then they'll have like a half hour special. They weren't always great, but that's the other place that I think in my head is like, well, that's probably where I actually saw stand up next was on Comedy Central. Yeah, I know I watched a lot of stuff and I, I couldn't begin to tell you times or places or where, but I, I kind of worked up a list of main stand up comedians that I grew up really liking. Louis C.K. was one of the first. Louis Anderson, Andrew Dice Clay, Ellen DeGeneres, Dave Attell on HBO was one of the funniest people I've ever seen. Maria Bamford, George Carlin, of course, Rodney Dangerfield, a little bit of Bill Cosby, but I didn't really watch much of his stand-up. Norm MacDonald killed me. Janine Garofalo, Bobcat Goldthwait, Whoopi Goldberg, Sarah Silverman, Colin Quinn, Stephen Wright. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Christopher Titus was, has always been huge for me. I've always really liked him. And those were the ones that really shaped and pushed me into why I like stand-up so much. A lot of those people, I saw their, not all of them got one, but I saw their TV shows. Like Christopher Titus? Yeah. I saw his television show. Never saw, I've, till this day, I've still never seen Christopher Titus do stand-up. I wasn't even sure if I even knew that he did, was a stand-up comedian. I just saw his sitcom. Right. And his sitcom was based off of stand-up. Right. I'm not trying to drift into sitcoms, but it's like, same thing was like, everybody loves Raymond. Ray Romano. Yeah. Until recently, I had never seen Ray Romano do stand-up comedy. I think maybe when that show was on, I had heard someone say that it was based on his stand-up comedy, but it meant nothing to me. It's like, I don't know. Who cares? It's a sitcom. It's funny. I'll watch it. But never really thought of him as a stand-up comedian, and until recently had not seen him do any stand-up. Same thing with, like, Drew Carey. Yeah. I know he was a stand-up comedian. Never saw him do stand-up, but I liked the Drew Carey show. Yeah. Same thing with Ellen. I knew Ellen DeGeneres had done stand-up. First time I saw her was her show Ellen, which I liked. I don't remember when her show started, but I do remember going, oh, sweet, she got a show, because I knew her from stand-up before that. And I don't know how I knew her from stand-up before that, because I don't know that I ever even saw it. It was probably actually late-night shows. Like, Carson was a little bit before my time. Like, I caught the tail end of that, but it was Leno. And then I was a huge Conan O'Brien fan. And that's where I, I would catch a lot of clips of stuff. Well, he's another good late-night example. I don't know if I've ever actually seen Conan O'Brien do stand-up. I've seen his late-night talk shows. Yeah. And again, opening monologues are not exactly the same. Not exactly. But I don't think I've ever seen him do stand-up. He's a good example of he's good at stand-up, but he's better at sketches, like writing sketches. And that's really what made his show unique amongst late-night is the little sketches that they would do. Very different than other shows, and very, if you didn't get it, it was stupid. But if you got it, it was genius. 
don't know. There, there's a handful of stand-up comedians that seem to be better at writing sketches. A lot of stand-up comedians actually got their start. Like, they would start with kind of a stand-up, and they would go write for, like, SNL or something like that, like John Mulaney. I think Conan wrote for SNL. Conan did, and actually Conan wrote for uh, Simpsons first. Right. Yeah, and, and they kind of get their start, their foot in the door that way while doing stand-up to kind of hone their craft. And sometimes it relates well. Like, John Mulaney does both really well. But some people are just much better at one or the other. And going into the sketch, I mean, I know we, we got to talk about Dave Chappelle. That's another one of those people who I loved the Chappelle show. But until relatively recently, I had never seen Dave Chappelle do stand up. Yeah. See, that was when the show came out. I was like, ooh, is that going to translate well? I don't know how well it's going to do. And it blew up. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. This dude can do no wrong. And again, I think that's one of the things that's different between the two of us. Again, when that show came out, I had no idea who he was. I watched it because I like sketch comedy, and it was hilarious. (laughs) And again, until recently, just the last couple of years, I finally saw him do stand-up. I actually watched one of his specials this morning. But going back to your point, it's like, I wasn't sure if he would be funny. His sketch comedy show was funny, but I hadn't seen his his stand-up. Like, just because we're talking sketch shows, Amy Schumer. I don't really like her much, but I've never seen her do stand-up. I've seen... Inside Amy Schumer, not all of it, Yeah. but I remember that it's a sketch comedy show. So I remember that. I didn't like all of it, but I liked the sketches. I've seen some of her movies, which I haven't really liked, but I've never seen her do stand-up comedy. Yeah. I feel bad for Kat Scoffing. She delivers well, but she's really not that good at stand-up compared to many other people. So I guess for me, when you break it down and you really look at it, so stand-up comedians, they use trial and error to really perfectly hone their jokes to perfection. They figure out the timing, the, the precise wording, exactly what it needs to be in order to make these people laugh. Because when you're doing stand-up, it's just you. And you against the audience. And you've got to get them on your side. It gets one misstep, it's all over. Whereas sitcoms kind of deliver generic jokes that are written by a group of writers... And they kind of depend on somebody to to be able to deliver those jokes in a funny way. And then sketch comedy is kind of the same thing. And both sitcoms and sketch comedy, usually they're on network TV. So they've got to be dumbed down and stuff. They can't be too pushing to the edge or they might get canceled. So you get people that they're not great at stand up. and, And a lot of them actually end up having to like steal jokes sometimes to really be funny. But they're good at delivery. So like Carlos Mencia, Amy Schumer's one, uh, Will Ferrell, Melissa McCarthy. Those are people that I think are great at sitcoms because they're really good at delivering things in a funny way, but not really that great. You know, they're funny, but they're not really that great at stand-up. They're just kind of funny. Yeah, there's a lot more people. I tend to think of people as comedians first without thinking about whether or not they're stand-up. But yeah, there's a lot of people who just aren't good at stand-up. Even if they even if they do it, they're not as good at it as they are in other things. It's a weird example, but I was trying to think the other day. It's like, was there ever someone that I saw in something that wasn't stand-up that I knew before I saw them actually as a stand-up comedian? And I could only come up with one example, Tim Allen. When I was in high school and college, I worked at a building materials store. <laughs> so 
Tim Allen, this was before he got home improvement. Tim Allen's stand-up routines had a lot to do with, which is why he got home improvement, because it was based in part on some of his stand-up material. Yeah. His stand-up got played like at expos and stuff that the building materials store that I would be there to work on. They would have TV set up and they would have little like bits and pieces of Tim Allen's stand-up. So when he got home improvement, it's like, oh, hey, I saw that guy do some jokes. Decent stand-up comedian within this one topic. And it was like, oh, home improvement. Oh, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) And he might be the only person who I actually knew as a stand-up comedian before I saw him in a show. And that's funny because he's one of the few that I knew as a sitcom person before I knew that he did stand up. <laughs> <laughs> but I did find it funny, though, that, that he developed that character out of necessities. He, he had a stand up routine, which was very, very different than that character. And he was just bombing really bad at this place. And it was like a basically like a room full of construction worker guys. And just on the spot, he developed that character just off the top of his head because he was bombing so bad. And then that went over so well, he just continued to do it. I'm not really sure whether I saw this before or after I saw the things that they were in. This is the only, is this why I said Tim Allen? Because these other ones, I'm not sure. And this is a really bad way to, to lead into this. The four white guys and the four black guys. The four white guys were Jeff Foxworthy, Larry the Cable Guy, Bill Engvall, and Ron White. The four black guys were Steve Harvey, Cedric the Entertainer, D.L. Hughley, and Bernie Mac. I've seen most of those eight people in other things like movies, sitcoms, and stuff like that. But I really remember because those eight guys, separately, had comedy tours Yeah, where they all performed together. I saw like recordings of those tours, either specials on like HBO or Comedy Central, or at least advertisements or commercials for them i did later like i saw jeff foxworthy's bad sitcom i think i saw bill ingville's bad sitcom saw bernie max sitcom i seen cedric and so and steve harvey but i don't know if i saw those comedy tours first before i saw them do other things yeah i'm with you on that i'm not sure either i mean i know i saw jeff foxworthy well before yeah that's why i'm saying i, I may have known i don't think i had seen someone like ron white I probably hadn't seen him other than that tour. And D.L. Hughley, I may not have seen him in anything else before I saw him with the original Kings of Comedy, which is what they call themselves. Mm -hmm. It also may have caught my attention because that's like another thing with stand-up is what if you go see a stand-up thing or watch a stand-up thing and the stand-up either sucks or you don't like them? Those shows like Drew Mina's like, well, there's four people. At least one of them's going to be funny. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) so it increased the odds that maybe watching this thing that something would be funny because there are comedians who it's just like anything with comedy it's very subjective you might not find a particular person or a particular topic funny but somebody else will right so it's like well my odds are better i have four people trying to make me laugh as opposed to just one yeah Uh, especially when you go to like the blue collar side of things when you get the jeff fox or the the billing ball Larry the Cable Guy, Ron White, they kind of go into like, like what I would call a group of stand-up comedians that do that specialize in either in impressions or just like a general character. Right. And they're kind of unique in themselves where they always have to do that. Like uh, impersonations, John Caliendo, 
he's one of the best. Dana Carvey, amazing. But then once you get past the impressions, they kind of die out. Yeah, that's, that's kind of their shtick. They're still hilarious, but they you can only do so many. And people get tired of seeing it. And then you get like the characters, and again, the characters kind of die off too, like uh, Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah. He's still around doing stuff. People don't realize, and he's still in character all the time, but people don't really think about it. Brian Regan? Actually, I might have to put Dice down, which is a weird example, but I'm pretty sure I saw him do stand-up before I saw him do his quote-unquote movies. But yeah, Andrew Dice Clay is a very... He's funny the first time, and then after that, it wasn't very amusing. Yeah, it depends on who you are. Like, two comedians, he's one of the best that's ever lived. But if you're not really in that realm and you're just looking to be entertained and you don't realize that it's a exuberant act, you d- it's not funny. Yeah, that's why like a lot of people who have seen him and other things have been surprised that, oh, he's not that like obnoxious asshole from the stand-up routines. It's like, no, that's a character he plays in stand-up. Right. So yeah, I, I haven't seen much of, of, I've seen some of that that material and then I've seen him in like movies and stuff, which I, I again, I like the movies better than his stand-up. Brian Regan's a good one, like you mentioned. But again, yeah. he's one of those people. He's in that other weird category of, I don't think I've seen him do anything else. Um, he doesn't really do much else. Yeah, so th- there are some stand-ups like him who are just stand-ups. And those are mainly the people that I probably have seen the least. To me, he is one of the best to ever do the craft. But he's not for everybody, necessarily. He's not for everybody, and he gets to... I don't know what the what, right way the, the phrase this is. I mean, I've a lot. I've been watching a lot of the last like ten days. I probably watched like twenty five comedy specials, mostly on Netflix. Which became whenever that came, that sort of became sort of like the new like big place that most people watch stand up these days. On Netflix, it's basically a, a one hour comedy special, and on some of them I watch, it's like this should be thirty minutes. There are some comedians who can carry a full special, and I do understand that there are going to be jokes that. Just because they didn't work for me doesn't mean that they weren't wouldn't work for other people. So maybe the entire special was good for everybody because it gave a little bit to everybody. But there were an awful lot of specials. It's like, yeah, this should have been a half hour. On the other side, you get like Christopher Titus. Most of his specials are an hour and a half to two hours. Yeah, I've never seen like any major long. I guess maybe going back to Eddie Murphy, his specials were pretty long. But most of the stuff I've watched has been on Netflix and into an hour. And this this is across the board. There are very few comedians that I would say consistently throughout the entire routine or the entire set has solid material. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best comedians. Okay. Like Jerry Seinfeld. I know Jerry Seinfeld almost exclusively from Seinfeld. Like in the 90s, I saw every episode of the, as it was like week to week as it was brand new saw it and had probably seen it each episode countless times after it got put on syndication on cable TV. And at the end, I mean, it was a slightly different show because he was playing a fictionalized version of himself. So technically, at the end of every episode, he was doing a joke on stage, but it wasn't really like seeing him do stand-up. Right. I watched a special of his this morning. He is very competent and very professional, and he filled his hour special with material that kept moving made me chuckle a couple of times but as soon as it was over i've completely forgotten it yeah to compare and contrast and then this is our terrible compare and contrast dave Chappelle. 
I watched one special this morning and another special like earlier in the week. Both of the specials that Dave Chappelle I watched, from my perspective, very uneven. There were long stretches of material that I did not find funny. But the parts that were funny were so fucking hilarious. Yeah. That overall, Dave Chappelle was better than Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld kept me actively engaged and entertained for the entire hour, but I could not tell you what the fuck he talked about. Yeah. Dave Chappelle made me lose attention because he drifted into some areas that I didn't find funny, but his special was vastly superior because the funny, the stuff that I found funny, I know that some the other, the things I didn't find funny, somebody else might have found funny, but the stuff that I found funny was so fucking hilarious. Dave Chappelle was obviously better. Yeah, that goes into the, I mean, there's different types of stand-up. So I guess Jerry Seinfeld is one of the main ones to bring it out forth, but you got the observational. Yeah. You know, what's the deal with airlines? What's the deal with these people? Yeah, yeah. And, but <laughs> that's kind of the main one versus just joke telling. Yeah. And then there's also kind of a split up between just set up punchline jokes. Yeah. Which I think actually, if if you want to know one of the best to do set up punchline jokes, Anthony Jeselnik yeah. is one of the best ever. Yeah, if that if that's what you want, just an endless stream of set up punchline, set up punchline. He is very good. But then you get like storytelling. And that's what really where Dave Chappelle is the king. Yeah. Because like you said, there's there's long gaps between where it's funny, where he's setting up the story, and then it's funny at the end. Yeah. And that's kind of what Christopher Titus does too. It's he has more jokes laced in it, but the jokes, they're not really even jokes. It's just funny ways of telling you the story that he's trying to tell you. The thing about Christopher Titus that I think is absolutely fantastic is he'll have an hour and a half or two hour special that's all on one subject he doesn't bounce around he tells one long story the thing about what the storytelling style that i really like is they take the truth they exaggerate it a little bit to make it funny but it's all true and it's raw and it's out there and it's honest even though it's exaggerated you know it's exaggerated but it's honest and I think that's what a lot of the best comedians do. Yeah, I would agree. I would think that stand-up comedy is probably, earlier I was struggling with what the right form would be, but honest was what the first word that popped into my head is yeah, an honest expression and an honest conversation. Stand-up has been this to a certain degree for a while, but I think it's one of the few times that people can laugh at material that in any other context would be offensive or inappropriate. And they got to toe that line. And that's where... Well, they got to toe that line, but sometimes they intentionally go over it. Right. And that's where I was like, if it was not stand-up, that would be offensive. Some people are still offended. Yeah. But it's like one of the few mediums was like, you can go across, you can toe the line, but you can go across the line. And it's still funny. But more importantly, by going across the line... You actually have, you create like a conversation around topics like Bill Burr, for example, is one of the comedians that comes to mind to talk about the, everybody gets offended by everything. So you, everyone's so offended to offend other people and to be offended by other people that no one fucking talks about anything. So no one has conversations about serious topics. Right. 
his comedy is, is somewhat uh, exemplifies that as well. It's like, yeah, you're going to kind of cringe at some of the jokes, but it's like, we're talking about it. Yeah. As opposed to, no one's talking about it. <laughs> In the comedy world, it's often said that where we figure out where the line is through stand-up. Yeah, I can see that. Stand-up really kind of sets the tone in society on what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Like I said, I I was starting to say, recently, after the Me Too movement, and then with all the social justice stuff, and I don't want to get into any of the specifics in that, but a lot of stand-up comedians got scared to push that line because people were getting canceled. Yeah. And Dave Chappelle, he had like three specials in a row on Netflix with a deal that he made. And he actually got into a lot of trouble from the cancel culture because he just went way past that line. It was like, fuck you guys. You can't tell me what I can say and what I can't say. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. It doesn't matter what you think about it. And that really kind of gave new strength to stand-up. Because I think we're really close to seeing the death of stand-up comedy a couple years ago. And then it was just it was guys like Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan and Bill Burr that just kept pushing it. Yeah, I would agree. There's definitely times where, and I know that uh, I've seen Bill Burr like in other contexts and stuff. Like I think it was actually in <laughs> Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, Jerry Seinfeld show, mm-hmm. when he had Bill Burr on. I think they were actually talking about like this exact thing, about like how people getting so offended and there are lines you can't cross and then you get in trouble because you say stuff. And again, and not to go into specific issues or anything, but like for me, just to give an example, I'm Irish. Half of my family's heritage is Irish on my mother's side. And I'm originally from Boston. So if I go to or see a, a stand-up special and a guy tells a really offensive joke about Irish people from Boston, really like insulting level, really going across the line, the only way that I will be offended is if the joke wasn't funny. <laughs> That's the only offense I would take. Fair. So for me, worst case scenario, that wasn't funny. But that doesn't mean the guy next to you wasn't offended. Exactly. And that's kind of like what Bill Burr is. It's like, not everybody gets offended, but the people who get offended are screaming so loud that it's making everybody afraid. Yeah. The other thing he says, too, is if you are offended by it, you don't have to watch it. If you're watching stand-up comedy... What the fuck are you expecting? Yeah. You're making the choice to watch a form of entertainment that pushes the boundaries. Now, it varies. Some comedians don't even get anywhere near that and and are very successful. We can come back to some people like Jim Gaffigan is probably an easy example. But if you're going to go see like a Dave Chappelle or a Bill Burr, what the fuck are you expecting? Right. Yeah. And if you don't like that, then just don't go see it. Doesn't mean they need to be canceled or they can't do that stuff. Fuck it. That's what you're going to see. Yeah. And then you run into stuff like, you go back to like those Eddie Murphy ones that you saw in the 80s. If he were to do those specials today, I don't even think they'd make air. Yeah, like I watched one of them recently. And yeah, it was still funny. One of the things that's difficult, it's always difficult to, this is also true of television shows and movies. There are parts of Eddie Murphy's, this is from the 1980s. Mm Mm-hmm. There are parts of Eddie Murphy's stuff that have to do with homosexuals right. that would not fly today. But the thing was, at the time, it was funny. Not only at the time was it funny, but if you honestly watched the set, 
he's not homophobic. He's not attacking gay people. Right. He's making jokes. Like, there's a difference between someone who's actually homophobic and actually, like, verbally assaulting someone and is trying to incite some type of violence. He's making jokes that are inappropriate, but he he's also throwing it around a lot. It's like, he doesn't hate gay people. Right. Back then, some of the terminology was would definitely not hold up to today's standards. But, yeah, I could see some people cringing at, at some of that material. And that being offensive just wasn't even a thought then. No, exactly. Because, again, I mean, it's, it's terrible to say this, but, like, some people in the gay community was like, well, at least they're making jokes. They're talking about us. Yeah. Which was also some, uh, uh, some of the things that, like, even in, like, Dave Chappelle's, one of his specials, he was, like, trying to, like, gay people were trying to compare them to, like, themselves to black people. He's like, da, 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 da. that's going too far. Yeah, you have a struggle. Da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on your side, but... Da, 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 da. Yeah. But back then, they were at least uh, making, like, the material. One of, like, uh, another comedian, again, didn't know he was a stand-up comedian, Patton Oswalt. One of my favorites. One of mine, too. Now, I saw him on sitcoms. He was on uh, King of Queens with Kevin James, who I also didn't know was a stand-up comedian. <laughs> I only knew he was on the sitcom. I had no fucking idea who Kevin James was. And that's where I first met Patton Oswalt, was on King of Queens. Patton Oswalt, in one of his specials, was talking about how everyone's getting... It's like, one of the things... He's trying to be very supportive of um, LGBTQ rights. But it's like, they keep changing the terminology. Yeah. And then people keep getting offended when you use the wrong terminology. Like, it's like someone got mad at RuPaul for using the word tranny. He's like, come on, it's RuPaul. Right. You wouldn't have transgender if there wasn't a RuPaul. And tranny was the term back then. RuPaul's not doing anything wrong, so shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Not using the right words is not the problem. It's like, listen to what people are actually saying in the joke or in their comments. Yeah. People are getting all bent out of shape over, like, the wrong terminology being used to describe the situation. Where I was going was more along the lines of things that are funny today might not be funny 20 years from now just because that terminology may be dated. Oh, yeah. And so, like, a good example of that, actually, I just saw uh, Sarah Silverman uh, was... I see it on Instagram. I'm not really sure where, if she's only doing it there or not, but she does like, she'll take questions and answer it and stuff like that. She brought up Paris Hilton, who recently had called Sarah Silverman out for jokes that Sarah Silverman made during like a roasting type thing, where at that time when Paris Hilton was super famous and getting in trouble a lot, that was a time when roasting was huge. And so Sarah Silverman was up on stage and she was roasting everybody And she got on to Paris Hilton, who she didn't realize was there. And she was talking about her being arrested soon and and probably having to to suck dicks or something like that. And being very good at that with all the practice that she's been getting. And something along those lines. And she said right when she got done, she looked over and she caught eyes with, with Paris Hilton, who was in the audience, and immediately regretted everything she said. And she just posted this, I think, just a day or two ago. And she's talking about that was 15 years ago. And she's like, I've, I've grown. I've changed. I don't I try not to do that kind of humor anymore. Uh, I realize that it's damaging to an individual. 
and actually at the time I felt so bad the next day I wrote a letter to her apologizing to her, which I now find out she never got that letter and it's still hurting her. And she's like, and that's why I don't do that kind of comedy anymore. There's like a, a subgenre of comedy like insult comics. Mm-hmm. And also, like you said, roasts used to be big. And some of the insult comics would often lead the roasts and stuff. Yeah. I was never like a huge fan of insult comics in general. I am, especially in roasting, but it depends on who's doing it, how well they do it, and who the target is. So, like, you get like roast battles, stuff like that. Oh, yeah, those are funny. When the target understands that they're just jokes and they're in on the joke, it's funny. But when they're not, it's less funny. So when you see, like, the Comedy Central roasts or the Friars Club roasts and stuff like that, you can tell watching their faces who's taking offense to it and who's not. When they are taking offense to it, you can see the pain. And it hurts. And it becomes not funny. And so I think the reason they've dialed that back and they do it focused on specific people is basically they kind of make the agreement ahead of time. These are the people you can target because they they're okay with it. And here's the people you can't. I think that's the way to do that type of comedy. Yeah, it it can work nowadays since we were just talking about with the cancel culture and all those stuff like that. It's probably not as popular. It used to be a hell of a lot more popular. Yeah. With everything that's going on, a lot of people are probably backing off a lot of that stuff. But it comes back to, again, it's like, are there any topics that should be out of bounds in stand-up? I am a firm believer in, I know I've mentioned it before, it was uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone that said it. If you draw a line in the sand that you won't cross that line, that makes everything else you've done possibly offensive. So I don't like there being lines, but I think you have to step carefully on those lines to make sure that it's actually a joke and not hatred. Yeah, that's what I was stumbling around earlier. Even if you go back to the 80s, like Eddie Murphy was not expressing hatred towards homosexuals when he was making jokes that were targeting them and using terminology that we would find offensive today, but that's not what he was trying to do. Right. He could update that to today's standards with the right terminology, but you would even be able to tell just from his tone of voice and the way he's saying it, that it's, he's not expressing hatred. Right. I like the the saying, if you're about to tell a joke, but you have to look around to make sure that the whatever target of that joke is not around before you say it, you shouldn't say that joke. Yeah. But if whoever the said target would be could be there and would think it was funny, you can tell that joke. There you go. And, and kind of also to my Patton Oswalt thing earlier, it's like, not only is it not expressing it with hatred, and that being kind of what Patton's point was, it's like, what is the person expressing? If they're expressing hatred, even though they're using the culturally appropriate terms, they're expressing hatred. And if you listen, that's what they're expressing. Right. Someone else who's not using the culturally appropriate terms, but is actually expressing solidarity or support, or just asking questions, or just making jokes, but they're not expressing hatred— You need to differentiate between the two. The expression of hatred is wrong, but that doesn't mean that anyone else is making jokes that are adjacent to that, but done as jokes, not the expression of hatred, then there's nothing wrong with that. Right. It might offend some people, but that shouldn't be fear of offense shouldn't be the thing. And and sometimes 
There might not be topics that are out of bounds, but there are obviously some topics that are very difficult to joke about because they seem like things that you shouldn't joke about. I hate to keep going back to Dave Chappelle. He's not the only comedian who does this. But it's top of mind for me now because I watched one of his specials this morning. Bill Cosby allegedly committed a lot of rape. (laughs) I was laughing so hard, sorry, at your wonderful delivery of allegedly committed a lot of rape. (laughs) Dave Chappelle had some very good jokes about this. So first off, he acknowledges, hey, Bill Cosby was like one of my favorite, my heroes growing up, and he's allegedly committed 56 rapes. That's a lot of rapes. But then later in the set, he's like, hey, I was in Hollywood once, and I was talking to these like promoters, and he asked me if I had any movie ideas. He's like, um, sure, I have a superhero movie idea. This is guy who's like, he's like Superman, but like even more powerful. And he has all these great powers. He's going around saving everybody. But there's a little bit of a hitch. In order to activate his superhero powers, he has to pat women on the pussy a couple of times. It's the only way to activate his superhero powers. Another problem is he is neither attractive nor rich or like charismatic or anything like that. So he keeps going up to all these women who's like, oh, there's this building that's on fire and I need to go save all of these people. So, you know, I just got to tap you on the pussy a couple of times to activate my superpowers. But it's like, get away from me, you creep. You're a horrible person. It's like, come on, come on. Just let me just tap you a couple of times. I can turn into a superhero. And they're like, no, 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 no. So he rapes them. And then the audience is like, oh. But then he goes into the building as a superhero and he saves all those people. It's like, so yeah, he had to rape someone to go save all of those people. So he's doing more saving than he's doing raping. Bill Cosby was on the air for like 20 years. He like revolutionized the portrayal of black people on television, worked with a clinical psychologist to make sure that nothing on the Cosby show ever depicted black people in a negative way. He sent countless black people to college, not just the ones he raped, And he did lots of other things for society and charitable contributions. And he also raped 56 people, allegedly. Yeah, we're going to acknowledge that, like, someone who's your hero did something really bad, but it doesn't, like, negate the good things that he did. Yeah. But it's also like nobody wants to talk about Bill Cosby anymore because of that. It's like we should be able to talk about, like, the whole thing. He, like, turned that whole, like, superhero power thing around and people are like, ah! like, well, this is an example of like rape would be like one topic that you would say, oh, that's got to be out of bounds. That's not something you should make any jokes about. Well, it depends on how it's done. Daniel Tosh, he had a joke where he talked about, yeah, him and his sister, they're always pulling pranks on, on each other. And the other day I got my sister real good. I replaced her pepper spray with silly string. Anyways, that night she got raped. And she calls me. She's like, Daniel, you got me. That really hurt. And everybody laughs at it. And then later he said he tells another joke that really isn't that bad, but everybody kind of groans because it's a subject that you probably shouldn't touch. And he's like, oh, that's where the line is. You guys were all fine with my sister getting raped, right? But this is where the line is. We're, we can't talk about this. And I think that brings into a lot of perspective of it. it really depends on subject matter of the time and how it's delivered. Exactly. Just to close that thing, like, 
Dave Chappelle was like, imagine 25 years from now, you find out Kevin Hart raped a bunch of people. Because he was trying to explain to like the younger audience, it's like, you don't under like people, like, especially like millennials, it's like, you don't understand 20 year olds in the audience. You don't understand how huge Bill Cosby was. Right. And how important he was to so many people for such a long time. And even that's not a good analogy because he's had some scandals before and he's known for having a somewhat dirty act here and there. Yeah, exactly. That's why Bill Cosby is so troubling. It would be more like, imagine you find out that Obama raped his way to presidency. There you go. That might be a better example. Yeah. Is there anything else? I mean, that was just one like topic that popped up. So we were talking about that there's no line that should be... If you set a line that you can't cross, then that makes everything else you've done possibly offensive. Whereas if there is no line, you make fun of everybody and everything, then it is less offensive or you, you can claim that it's just a joke more. But if you set a line, that means you think that that's offensive, but this isn't. Right. And I think that even the comedians who don't cross that line, at least they do a good job of pointing out that there is a line there. And sometimes that's enough. Yeah. Because again, some of those topics where there is a line, there's just not enough social conversation going on. Yeah. And a lot of people that do set a line, though, they're setting a line because they're not really doing offensive comedy. Yeah. One of the most popular clean comedians is probably Jim Gaffigan. He's very unique today. I liken him to a pop star where he's kind of generic, but he just delivers what's expected. You can enjoy it for what it is, but really probably not the best at what he does. I'm not trying to suggest that he's like the best or anything like that, but I mean, He's probably, I think he's actually the only comedian that I know I've seen live, like actually in person, because a couple years ago he came to the Iowa State Fair and we went to see him. Yeah. I've been to comedy clubs, but I could not tell you who I saw. Yeah. Like I didn't go to, I didn't go to comedy clubs when there was like a headliner and I've definitely not gone to like a concert hall or something like that where someone was doing a special or something like that. So that Jim Gaffigan at the Iowa State Fair is probably the only live comedian that I knew was a comedian and I was intentionally going to see him. I probably seen some of the comedians who went on to have specials at comedy clubs. I just don't, I've only been to a comedy club like two or three times in my life. I've only seen a handful live because usually when people are, they come here, I'm like, Hey, anybody want to go see this comedian? They're awesome. And people are like, yeah, I don't really do stand up. So it's hard to find anybody to go with. Well, you also don't like to be around people who are drinking. Yeah, that hurts too. Because there are sometimes, and, and I've noticed this even in like good comedians, like sometimes I'll like watch like their specials or something like that. It's like, I don't really know why everybody's laughing. It's like, oh, it's because most of them are drunk. <laughs> that has to help. There's also, I mean, you see it in sitcoms. The reason sitcoms have laugh tracks is you're more likely to laugh if you hear other people laughing. And so it's actually almost like a magician secret of, I don't know if they do it still, but I know they used to do it is, Stand-up comedians would have three or four plants in the audience of people they knew that would laugh at the jokes to get other people to laugh too. And that just kind of keeps it going. So if they're starting to bomb or something, those people will save them by laughing at the jokes that aren't as funny to keep other people laughing. I, I agree. There's also some comedians, I don't like it when comedians do this. There are also some comedians who laugh at their own jokes and that triggers laughter from the audience. Yeah. I don't really like that, but... There are some comedians who do that. I think it depends. I mean, sometimes it's just you could tell they're really enjoying what they're doing, and that's why they're laughing. But there are times where it seems forced. 
I mean, laughter is contagious. So like you said, people in the audience are laughing because other people are laughing. Yeah. Even when it's that plant or the comedian laughing at their own stuff, it's definitely more organic than a laugh track on a sitcom. Yeah. It's one of those weird things like we watch funny things together and I hardly ever laugh out loud. When something's funny in stand-up, it's usually really funny and I actually do laugh. Right. Stand-up comedians are the best at comedy, but you don't see them as often. Instead, you see sitcoms, which are kind of the B-plus comedy students usually. And even if you get a really good stand-up comedian going into a sitcom, they are trying to do other people's jokes and they find them boring and not funny, but they're still trying to deliver it. So then they end up looking bad because they're being forced to do this. Yeah. And going back to the failed transition, because you ruined it. (laughs) I was a hater on the hatred transition. (laughs) Two of my first stand-up comedians that I always, that I really enjoyed is a type of stand-up comedy that gets a lot of hatred, and that's prop comedy. (laughs) You're not going to mention Carrot Chop, are you? Carrot Chop's funny. He is. I don't care. He's funny. And yeah, it's it's prop humor, and it's it's not the best, <laughs> but it's funny. And then you get Gallagher. Hit that watermelon with a sledgehammer. Exactly. How many times can you do that and have it still be funny? <laughs> Apparently, 20 years of doing it. I mean, Gallagher was still funny. Yes. Even when it wasn't even Gallagher anymore. When it was Gallagher 2 and Gallagher 3, it was still kind of funny. Not as good, but yeah. There's a lot of different types of stand-up. A lot of people do it, and there's, it flows. There's trends that become popular, and then you got to keep changing with the times, just like anything else. I think it's important to bring up, there's something that gets brought up a lot in stand-up comedy, and it's that women can't be funny. I was going to go there. And that's such bullshit. The only issue that I have is so many female stand-up comedies think they have to be dirty in order to be funny. Wow, I actually agree with you completely. And that's really where, like, Amy Schumer lost me like she was just being dirty for the sake of being dirty and it wasn't really funny but then you get like whitney cummings she does get dirty a lot but that's not all she does and she's hilarious yeah uh nikki glazier kind of the same thing liza schlesinger a little bit she's just funny though yeah she's just funny as well yeah i I always hate the question it's like can female comedians be funny it's like it's the same answer to can male comedians be funny if they are Right, exactly. Whether or not you're funny, I don't care if it's gender or or any other attribute. It's like, if you're funny, you're funny. Yeah. I do lament the subcategory of female comedians that just rely on nothing else other than sex jokes. (laughs) I'm such a slut. I sucked so many dicks last night. Yeah. If that's like the whole fucking set, it's just like, please do something else. Yeah. Tell jokes. Be funny. One of the most underrated in my opinion female comedians is Tignataro. she's awesome she is she's like the stephen wright of today she's in that category of also the the dry wit deadpan yeah the several comedians that fit into that category sorry but yeah she tig's awesome i like her yeah i like her a lot i just kind of want to run through some names of so here here's kind of a list of stand-up comedians that i think are just always deliver are you drifting away from the, the women? Yeah, I think I said all I wanted to say there. Do you have more you want to say there? Only a couple that have popped up just because I've I, uh, seen them recently. One I actually have liked for, for a very long time, Jen Kirkman. I've always been a big fan of Jen Kirkman. 
for dumb reasons. She's from Massachusetts. She's about my age. And a lot of her comedy, not all, but a lot of her comedy has to do with being single and not wanting kids. <laughs> but she's also very, very funny. One that I just recently discovered. Have you ever seen Hannah Gadsby? Yeah. She is an Australian comedian. She is fantastic. I also want to come back to her as an example later, though, of comedians who use trauma in their comedy. So I want to come back to her. But she was just another one that I had on a list of, of excellent female comedians. I wasn't overly impressed with her when I saw her. It was funny, but it wasn't great. Well, can come back to the trauma thing. Her special Nanette won a Peabody Award and, and other awards. I thought it was powerful, but because it wasn't just funny. Yeah. So I wanted to come back to that later. Pure comedy, she's not the funniest, but it's like I, I was impressed by her. I've seen her or lately. Her second special is a lot funnier. We'll come back to that. Taylor Tomlinson, just because I saw her recently, she's like a mid-20s comedian. She was better than I expected. I, I was actually not expecting her to be funny. This is actually pretty funny. I'm bad with names. I'm so bad with names. that I know I've seen these people, but I, don't, I can't pick them off off the top of my head. There's a lot of people that I don't know their names. Like the other place that I often see stand-up comedians is in like movies and TV shows. It's like, hey, that person whose name I don't know, I know you're a stand-up comedian. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned actually about being from Boston and about your age. And I don't know if you realize a large majority of the big name stand-up comedians are from Boston and about your age. Bill Burr, Stephen Wright. Actually, Stephen Wright's probably a little bit older now. Joe Rogan. I'm not a huge Joe Rogan fan. Conan O'Brien. Conan O'Brien. There are a lot of people from Boston in comedy that are really good. Yep. I don't even know really how to break it down. Because there's a lot of comedians. Like, I, I think of comedians that have been around for a little while that there's always deliver for me. And Bill Burr's on the top of that one. Dave Chappelle. Hannibal Burris. Mike Birbiglia. Joe Rogan. Tom Segura. Whitney Cummings. Kevin Hart, Patton Oswald, Brian Reagan, Brian Posehn, John Mulaney. I mean, they just always deliver. And then you've got, there's some that are kind of too new to know if they're going to always deliver or they're good sometimes, but not always. Bo Burnham. Yeah, too early to tell. Too early to tell, but I mean, he started a long time ago on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, I've seen his stuff. He's good. And uh, Dane Cook. You know, he gets a bad name, but he's funny. Dane Cook and Jim Gaffigan both come to mind for me. Dane Cook, for me, is comedy for stupid people. Okay. And Jim Gaffigan is comedy for everybody. Dane Cook's popular because there are a lot of stupid people. I don't find Dane Cook funny, but he is popular with a lot of people. And he sells out like, I mean, I don't think he's as popular now, but for a while he was like selling out arenas and stuff like that. And it's like, I've never found any of his just like, it's so forced and it's just so stupid, but a lot of people find him funny. It's just like the people who like Larry the Cable Guy. There's a lot of rednecks out there. So, I mean, there are people who have found their audience and you might not like them. Like, I don't like Dane Cook. They have found an audience and they deliver what that audience wants. And that's why they're popular. How much and how recently have you seen Dane Cook? It's been a while. Because I, I know when he first started, he was he was great. And then he got really commercialized and dumbed down because he just took he took off so quickly. The commercialized, dumbed down stuff is the stuff I'm referring to. 
Yeah. And that's pretty much all I, that's pretty much, and in fairness, that's pretty much all I know him for. Yeah. And then uh, he had like a lot of issues and basically like his life crashed. And lately he's been building it back up and going back to doing like stadium tours and stuff. And he's hilarious again. Okay. But he got that bad rap for that, you know, he jumped up so quickly and everybody just wanted to just beat on him, beat him back down because he jumped up faster than is acceptable in the comedy world. And so he just got a really bad name for a while. And uh, he, he's coming back, I think. Okay. Chris D'Elia, he's really funny. And he's pretty consistent, but I just haven't seen enough of him yet to move him up my list. I've seen him more in, in sitcoms, but I, I've seen at least one of his shows. Donald Glover. I Again, I don't think I've ever seen him. I know he has a stand-up special on, on Netflix. I like Donald Glover. I've seen most of the TV shows he's been in. I don't think I've ever seen him actually do stand-up. You should. It's good. Nikki Glaser, she's hit and miss. She's really funny, but then sometimes she kind of hits that just being dirty to be dirty. Yeah. And, and But then she comes back from it. I kind of think of her as the best of the be dirty to be dirty girls. She does other stuff. Yeah. But she falls back on that a lot. But again, it goes back to it works. There's an audience for that. She's giving that audience what they want. That's true. So, I mean, it, it's hard to criticize people who have found an audience. It's like if it's working and you're getting paid, hey, stick with it. I guess I do also want to say there's, it's not just women that do that either. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think Robin Williams kind of went that way sometimes too. He was another one that, other than like the charity fundraisers that he did with Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg, that's about the only time I ever saw Robin Williams do stand-up. Everything else was Mork and Mindy in the movies. Yeah, see, and I never even watched Mork and Mindy. Do you like Mark Marin? He falls into, his stuff just gets too political for me. Like, even when I agree with him, I'm like, you're just, you're pushing it too much. He's funny, but he's just too political for me. That is a subgenre that also was where I got into a lot more comedy. I'm not a big fan of political comedy because I don't really like getting into politics too much. Like, I like to be informed, but I don't like to dive too deep. But that's the other place that I saw The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. When Jon Stewart took over The Daily Show, he wasn't the original host. And I, ne- I never saw him do stand-up. I was like, hey, it's a stand-up comedian sitting behind a desk telling jokes. And he capitalized on the thing that we were talking about earlier, the power of stand-up to be able to talk about things that in any other context would be offensive and inappropriate. He applied that very specifically to politics. Yeah. And with The Daily Show, it was that combined with a multimedia presentation and occasional guests that really allowed him to tell the truth to power and stuff and make jokes and talk about sensitive political issues that would have, wouldn't have otherwise gotten attention. And then nowadays we have a lot of the late night shows are like that anyway, but then you have like last week tonight with John Oliver and you have full frontal with Samantha B, Which was all stolen from Weekend Update on SNL. Which again, which is also what I remembered from a kid, a Weekend Update on SNL. So it's not like they invented something, but they really ran with it. And they're not all political, but most of them are quite political. Yeah. And that's not for everybody. Like, sometimes I joke, it's like the only difference between, like, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and the Rachel Maddow show is that you'll get actual comedy, intentional comedy from John Oliver. Yeah. But, like, from a political perspective, they're both very liberal. Well, that goes into, like, George Carlin. He did that a lot, too. And that's—he's hit and miss for me, too. Like I said, even when I agree with them, 
I just don't like the feeling that they're pushing an agenda on me. Yeah, and that's why I'm hit or miss on Mark Marin as well. So I think I interrupted you when you were going through lists of other, like, go-to reliable comedians. Anthony Jeselnik. Yep. I haven't seen enough of him again for him to jump up to the next level for me, but so far consistent. Another person that I think is severely underrated is Dimitri Martin. I'm a big fan of Dimitri Martin. He's in that sort of, again, that subcategory of like the deadpan, soft-spoken type stuff. Like, again, I would put like Stephen Wright and Mitch Hedberg into that category too. Dimitri also does weird things with charts and graphs and stuff. I like him and I find his stuff funny. He had a show for a while and it was great. I loved it. And I'm not sure if I knew him from that show or if I knew him from stand-up, but I I like his stand-up. Yeah. And I guess th- this is someone that I never really got into later, but I feel like if we're doing a, anything on stand-up comedy, we have to say Richard Pryor. Yeah, that was one of those things from like, again, going back to when I was a kid. It's like, I knew who Richard Pryor was from movies. Yeah. And I knew from Eddie Murphy that Richard Pryor used to do stand-up comedy. But I never, I don't think I ever actually saw Richard Pryor actually do stand-up comedy. Because like, I remember Eddie Murphy making a joke that, Bill Cosby called him up and said, you can't say fuck in front of people. Eddie Murphy's like, oh, so depressed. And I called up Richard Pryor. He said, tell Bill, I said, have a Coke and shut the fuck up. Because <laughs> Richard Pryor was known for being very dirty. Yeah. Dirty, not like sex dirty, like profanity. And, then, and I guess we should differentiate that too. There's the dirty, like sex dirty. And then there's the dirty, lots of profanity. And Richard Pryor was was one of them. So and Andy Murphy was as well and continuing. And then there were others that would play more clean. So yeah, Richard Pryor, I never really knew as a comedian, a stand-up comedian. I just knew him as a guy who was funny in movies. Yeah, I guess dirty as far as profanity. I very rarely even notice profanity. Yeah. Because I'm just so used to it. Because again, I've been watching stand-up for so long that most of the time I don't notice it unless I'm thinking about who's listening. Yeah, which again, that's why I keep coming back to is like, if you're not sure... If people might be offended, Jim Gaffigan. (laughs) Yeah. He's not the funniest. He's not the best. But you're not going to have to worry about him offending anybody. When it comes to like on here, you notice that you you tend to be a lot more vulgar than I am on here. The fuck are you talking about? (laughs) In the back of my head, I'm always thinking, my mom might listen. (laughs) (laughs) Your fucking mother doesn't listen to this show. Well, that's the thing. She would actually find it hilarious. But that's just not what she hears from me. So I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I swear. I'm one of those people who swears too much. I grew up in Boston. I Friends would come over to my house to learn swear words. Not just from me, from my family. Everybody swore in my family. So it's like, yeah, it's just second nature to me. Everybody in my family swears is not around each other. Ah, okay. I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just kind of one of those weird things that we all know, but we just, none of us are willing to cross that line first. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's weird. There are some comedians that also, I mean, probably not so much now because it's not as big of a deal, but there were some comedians that probably relied too much on profanity as well. Yeah. But, you know, different things to different people. I don't know if we, we probably mentioned him, uh, just looking at like lists of people. I think we mentioned Chris Rock. I mentioned him within Living Color. Did you ever, do you like his stand-up? Uh, yeah, I like his sketches better than his stand-up, but he is really good at stand-up. Yeah, I've seen him more in... I remember from Million and Carolina, I remember more from movies, but I've seen some of his stand-up stuff. It's not bad. There was one sketch that he would do all the time, and I can't even remember if it was on In Living Color, SNL, or both. You know, he's always like, Good Lord, that's a lot of money. How 
about I give you 17 cents? <laughs> and I still do that, and nobody understands where it's coming from. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's my first thought whenever I think Chris Rock. That and the 13th Apostle. From Dogma, yes. <laughs> that's what I mean. It's like, I know I remember him more from, from movies and stuff. Right. Earlier, we had mentioned, like, Rodney Dangerfield, who, again, when I was a kid, he was, he was in funny movies, but I know he did comedy. And he got no respect. It's like, get no respect. No respect at all. But he comes also from an older generation of stand-up comedians like Henny Youngman and going back to long before even I was born to help perpetuate that whole genre and, and stuff like that. Again, I never saw him do stand-up either, but I thought it was funny in the movies I saw. It was him. I mean, going back further, Lenny Bruce. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Don Rickles that really opened the door to... Don Rickles! I remember Don Rickles. Yeah. They're the ones that, at least as far as I can tell, they're the ones that really opened the door to, like, profane and just open raw comedy. And then, of course, Richard Pryor. Yeah. You want to jump into your, uh, your subject that you wanted to talk about? Oh, yeah, the one sort of other category of, like, should certain topics be off-limits, but also, like, one of the things that sometimes comes up in, I don't know, it comes up in other things, too, but the whole, like, idea of, like, translating trauma into entertainment and the artist has to suffer for their work. A lot of people talk about comedians, especially stand-up comedians, they do a lot of that sort of things of transforming, like, traumatic stuff yeah. or difficult things into comedic material to give people a way to be able to laugh at something that's not inherently funny or maybe deal with some difficult topic. So I mentioned uh, Hannah Gadsby earlier because her first special, Nanette, which won a Peabody Award and other awards, was not just stand-up comedy, but it was also part, like, monologue and part, like, lecture and stuff like this around the trauma that she experienced as part of her experience as a lesbian. And that was some of the most more powerful parts of that special, which it, it, was, it was not your typical stand-up comedy because it did drift into, like, some angry, emotionally powerful material that you would not typically see or hear in a stand-up routine. Other times you would see people take that trauma stuff and transform it into something that would be more maybe traditionally what you would think of in a stand-up comedy routine. Yeah. There are plenty of examples, but the other example that popped in my head is Neil Brennan, who most people, if they even know who Neil Brennan is, they know him in association with Dave Chappelle. Neil Brennan actually co-wrote The Chappelle Show with Dave Chappelle and then later became a comedian. He even jokes that a lot of his friends have telling him he's doing his career backwards because <laughs> usually you start out and stand up and then maybe you get into writing and sketch comedy and stuff like that. He's basically done writing and sketch comedy his, most of his career and now he's getting around in like the last five years to doing stand up. So he did a, a, a special called Three Mics on Netflix where depending upon which microphone he was standing behind, he did a different type of material. So one of the mics was called Stand Up, where he did actual traditional stand-up material. One of the mics was called One-Liners, where he just delivered one-liners, like stand-up jokes, like set-up punchline, just straight-out one-liners. And then the other microphone was what he called emotional stuff. And in Neil's case... It was about his lifelong difficulties with depression mm -hmm. and his very, very difficult relationship with his father. And in that part, he wasn't trying to be funny. When he was doing the emotional stuff, he was telling people, talking about depression and his difficult relationship with his father. But it's mingled into the other two mics for stand-up and one-liners. So it combined both. And like I said, 
So Hannah Gadsby and Neil Brennan are not outliers, but they're slightly different in the sense that included in an otherwise straight-up stand-up routine is some emotional stuff. Yeah. But there are some other comedians that blend it in just more naturally. Christopher Titus. Yeah. Everything that he does, his entire every special is about his difficult relationships with his family, his battles with depression, his family history of depression and suicide and everything. Very, very heavy stuff, and he makes it funny throughout. And that's where I get into like the the first the Hannah Hannah Gatsby, where I watched that, and I and I made it through, and it was kind of funny, but I don't care. What, and this is me. I'm 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 a comedy guy. I don't care what the message is if it's not funny first. Right, which is why a lot of people didn't like that special. Yeah, I don't like that. Like the vagina monologues from back in the day. It was kind of funny, and it sent a great message, but it wasn't funny first. And, you know, that won a bunch of awards, too. And that's, it gets into a different subject of, to me, a lot of awards are undeserving. They're just given because of the emotion part of it, but they miss the entertainment part, which should be number one to me. And so that's what separates the greats from the OKs. I think it's relatively rare. Most people do like what Christopher Titus does, turns it into a comedy routine. Not very many people split it. And again, there's probably other examples, but Hannah Gatsby and Neil Brennan are the only two that popped into my head that I've seen recently, where they actually had something where this is not comedy. And again, other people will be like, well, then just take that part out and whatever is left. And if you, and you could do that with Hannah Gatsby's first thing. If you took that part out, she did do stand-up in that special. But the other argument is you can tell those stories and make them funny. Not her style. Yeah. I just wanted to bring it up is that sometimes you do have people who, and you can maybe argue that that's also why television shows that have a mixture of comedy and drama, not sitcoms, that have a mixture of comedy and drama do this better. And that maybe stand-up comedy is just not even a venue for it. And, and a lot of people criticized her. Hannah Gatsby, that is. That's not stand-up. You shouldn't have done that. Don't call that stand-up. That wasn't stand-up. Her second special was much better because her second special was straight-up stand-up. Yeah. It was funnier. I mean, the funny parts of the first one were funny to me. The other parts, I could see why people were like, I don't want to fucking listen to that. But her funny parts were funny. It it goes into, I guess, a a completely separate thing for me is just a show. So, like, uh, Henry Rollins does shows a lot, and they're funny, but they're not comedy. Like, like they're not stand-up comedy. Yeah. He's telling stories, he's sharing ideas, and he spins them into ways that are funny, but it's not stand-up comedy. And I think that's where I would put that. If if I'm going in to watch what she did as stand-up comedy, it's not that good. But if I'm going to watch it as a show, yeah, it's funny. And I would be much more accepting of it if she wasn't labeling it a stand-up. Or maybe it wasn't intended to be stand-up. Maybe it was labeled by the producers as stand-up, but it wasn't intended to be. Well, that gets into semantics, too. It's like, they're called comedy specials. Eh, yeah. But we think of it, it, if it's one person on the stage, although sometimes there are multiple people, too. I don't know. Yeah, whether or not it... But again, it's still an outlier. Most stuff is not like that. And it also might have been why it got a lot of awards attention is because of how different it was. Yeah. But who knows? But I mean, occasionally stuff like that comes out, but it's usually translated through 
turn it into actual comedy. Like, I forget who was commenting on it. It might have been Bill Burr. Because Bill Burr was talking about how, oh, everybody thinks Brian Regan's hilarious and he tells all of these funny stories. It's like, you don't understand. The actual story that Brian Regan's comedy is based on is not fucking funny. Yeah. He went through some really fucking harrowing shit, really emotionally devastating shit, that if he actually told you the story, would not make you laugh. But he takes that and translates it into something that's a joke. So you're like, ha ha ha, that's funny. But in Bill Burroughs, it's like, yeah, he is funny and he's good at stand-up. But don't for a minute think that that's not coming from a place of pain. Now, he wasn't trying to say, and I'm not trying to say, that that's where all comedy comes from. But there is a lot of stuff where people do, it comes from a place of pain, but they translate it into something that's actually funny. I'm going to bring it back to Steve Christopher Titus again. For me, he, he exemplifies this. He always says that, I mean, he does what he does. That is his therapy. That's how he works through shit. It, one of the specials, and he brings it up in a couple of them, but one of the specials, one of the main parts is he talks about how his mother shot and killed one of her husbands and then killed herself, and he makes it funny. You have to be an expert to make something like that funny and to be able to go up on stage. And people don't realize either that what you see is a comedy special is not just a one and done. That is something they've been doing hundreds of times, sometimes two or three times a night, touring for two years before it becomes a comedy special. And that's what I say when, I, when I'm talking at the beginning about them honing their craft and polishing every single joke, figuring out just the right timing and wording and everything. They'll start with some ideas go to a small club, work out some of those ideas, figure out which of those ideas will work and which don't work, go back, rewrite, expand, go try those out again, you know, see what works, see what doesn't work. Eventually, they'll, they'll come up with, with an hour or so, and then they start touring with it and just keep polishing because sometimes these jokes will work in this area of the country, sometimes they don't work over here, so you got to figure out what works in both areas tour for a year and a half or so before they finally polish it enough to become a special. So these people that are working on their traumas, they're living and working on that trauma multiple times a day for years. Agreed. It's also why a lot of people don't appreciate how difficult it is to do stand up and why some people may have actually seen some of the comedians that we've mentioned live and didn't like them as much. Because like I said, those live shows or where they're honing their craft and they're working through the material and trying to figure out what's the best way to tell this joke, which joke works, and that type of stuff. So it's the end process of a lot of trial and error and experimentation that finally gets culminated into the polished one-hour special. And in some cases, too, those specials are also edited. Yeah. You're not seeing the, they fucked up the line, oh shit, or... That some, like they went over time. So, so you're not, it, it's still live. It's not like it's faked, but it's like, it, there's also a little bit of editing that's going along. Like there's, uh, it doesn't happen very often, but some of the stand-up specials, actually, one of the ones I watched recently was Chelsea Peretti's. She included the outtakes at the end mm-hmm. of the things that she fucked up during the taping and they had to redo. Yeah, Brian Regan did that too. Yeah, so sometimes you get to see that aspect. Of, but, yeah, but yeah, it's the people who 
Or even if this you, you see a special one, it's not very good or you didn't like it very much. It's like a hell of a lot of work went into perfecting that or, or working on that material. And yet any idiot can get up behind a microphone and an open mic and tell jokes. But you will probably fucking suck. Yeah. One of the comparisons I wanted to make was, again, talking about funny in a sitcom versus stand-up comedy. I am very confident that I could sit in a writer's room for a sitcom and write for a sitcom. I am fairly confident that I could act in a sitcom and deliver in a funny way. No way in hell am I funny enough to do stand-up. Yeah, I would agree. Thanks. Most of the time I would say, yeah. Even in real life, it's like, yeah, my comedy is more situational. I suck at telling jokes. You know this. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I would fucking be horrible trying to do stand-up. Anybody could try it. You would just suck at it. Thanks. Someone who's even moderately competent at it is a very rare skill. Yeah. So even when I see specials that I don't particularly care for, it's like, it's like, it's still, that's still something I can never fucking do. So you got to give a lot of props. And it's definitely way harder than acting in a sitcom. Right. And again, even in, in sketch shows, you have backup because there are other people that you're playing off of. Stand-up is, is very, very difficult to do. Exactly. Every stand-up says... They fail. Like they always say, if you're going to get into stand up, make sure you're good at failure because you're going to fail a lot. And the only comedian that I know of that everybody just kind of says that they never really failed, that they were just good from the start, is Dave Chappelle. Huh. I think they said he started at 14. And, you know, there, there were some big name comedians that were there at his first time. They're like, he was just hilarious the first time he was up there. Like he was just born to do it and he just knew how to do it. Yeah, and that and that's incredibly rare. Kind of like the difference between like an athlete with natural raw talents and someone who's had to work hard and at it over years and years of of practice and repetition and stuff like that. Trevor Noah just popped into my head along those same lines. He took over for the Daily Show after John Stewart left. It's like, who the fuck's that guy? How did he get the job? He was a stand-up comedian before he got the job with Daily Show, and you can still see some of his specials on Netflix. But he was describing like the process when he was working it before he got his big break to be on The Daily Show. He's like, yeah, when I, w- I would be in New York, I would do like going around the different clubs around the city, like th- three shows a night, six nights a week. Then I would get on a plane and, and fly to like either London or he's from South Africa or South Africa and do the same thing there, like three to four shows a night, six nights a week. Every week, week after week, that was his life. Oh, he came out of nowhere. It's like, no, he's been doing stand-up for five years, doing that week after week, night after night, this crazy doing nothing else. And that's how he got to be so polished and why he was so good and he got tasked to, to take over for The Daily Show. His stand-up comedy is actually pretty good too. But again, it's, it's a skill, but it's also the result of a tremendous amount of hard work. Yeah. A couple of other comedians just popped in my head or, or had notes on about this is gonna be a bit, bit scattershot, but have you ever seen Jimmy Carr? Oh yeah. He's a British comedian. He's great. I meant to bring him up earlier, the whole thing about like not offending people. He's not the only example, but he's a good example of oh gee, I might offend people. Was like, no, like almost every fucking joke is intended to offend you. <laughs> He's like a more polished Ricky Gervais. Yes. One of the things that I found most, I mean, I've only seen a couple of his specials. One of the things I found like weirdly impressive, like most stand-up comedians come out with a microphone and a mic stand and they're wandering around the stage like a crazy person throughout the entire special. 
Jimmy Carr comes out. He's wearing a headset, so he doesn't have a microphone. Stands front center stage. Does not fucking move for over an hour. <laughs> stands in the same fucking spot and just does 90 minutes of comedy without moving. <laughs> but he is a good example of like, oh, yeah, he does joke after joke after joke after joke of offending you. He's also one of those examples I wanted to go into of like some comedians are good at crowd interaction mm -hmm. and some are not. He was one of the ones that popped into my head is like he gets heckled and he fucking eviscerates the heckler. Oh, yeah. There are some comedians who don't do that well. But if you think you can fuck with him and, and other comedians who are good at it, it's like, eh. you think this is the first time the guy's been heckled? It's like he's done thousands of shows in much smaller venues with much drunker people. <laughs> you want to know who's really good at that? You've probably never heard of him, but Steve Hofstetter. Nope, I don't think I've heard of him. I don't think he's ever had a special. He, he does clubs a lot, and he's pretty well known. He gets heckled a lot, and he just owns on them every time. Bill Burr is really good at it, too. He's, he's got a pretty famous one from uh, Philadelphia, I think it was. You should Google that. He went on for like 15 minutes after a heckle of just... Basically just berating, not like the crowd and the entire city. There are also some venues that are just more naturally, like the, the famous comedy club in New York, the Comedy Cellar, which is where you see, which you used to see a lot on like the Comedy Central specials. It's usually where they were taped. But it's like, it's a tiny fucking venue. Like the quote unquote stage is maybe like six feet wide and maybe like three feet deep. Like your, your back is literally up against a brick wall. If you step forward, you step into the audience and there's like maybe three feet on either side of you. You have nowhere to go. You're basically like standing in the audience, <laughs> surrounded by people. Yeah. And that's where you see some of the best like heckler inter uh, interactions or not even just heckling, just sort of like comedians who like ask for like audience participation. It's like, hey, what do you do? Or where are you from? And, and that like goes off on riffs and stuff Yeah. that some comedians are better at than others. Like one of the specials on Netflix, uh, Judah Freelander, who I know more as a comedy writer, and some people may only know him from the sitcom 30 Rock because he actually was a character on the show, so he was actually in front of the camera. But he did a, basically it was a series of him doing stand-up. It was a special, but it was like a recording of like over a year and a half of him just going and doing sets at the Comedy Cellar. They did this edited together into a comedy special. Not all, but large portions of it was just him like, hey, where are you from? And what do you do? And all this stuff. And then it was also around like the time of like the presidential election back in 2016. I'm running for president. Not really. <laughs> what do you want to know about uh, this issue? So he was like, what issue are you concerned about? And people would, would shout out an issue and he would just go off on a riff on the issue. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there was obviously some pre-done material, but he was pretty good at riffing off of. He's also another one of those um, deadpan, low-key type uh, comedians. Yeah. On the opposite spectrum of that would be Lewis Black. Oh, Lewis. I love Lewis Black. <laughs> <laughs> Although, again, same thing with him. I saw Lewis Black on The Daily Show. Yeah, see, and I knew him before The Daily Show. First time I ever saw him was on The Daily Show, and I would only later see him do stand-up comedy. Yeah, his was actually, there's, there's one joke he does about, if it weren't for my horse... I never would have had that year in college. And how hearing a phrase like that and not knowing where it came from is why people have aneurysms. <laughs> and 
hearing that when I was, I think I was a teenager then, but me and some of my friends, like that was just like, whenever we heard something that would be like the dumbest thing we've ever heard in my life, we would just look at each other and go, if it weren't for my horse. <laughs> and that's just been a lifelong constant joke. Do you like jokes like that that like kind of like catch you off guard and like come out of nowhere? Like there are some comedians that you watch, set up punchline, set up punchline, you know exactly where it's going. And there are some comedians who's like, what, 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 where the fuck did that come from? If I can tell where it came from, where it's coming from or where it's going before the punchline, it's not good. Okay. Like set up punchline, Anthony Jeselnik, going back to him, that's where he's great is he gives a setup and you think you know what the punchline is going to be. And then the punchline is every time it's a curveball that you don't expect. You think you know what it's going to be and it's some completely different and way funnier. Do you prefer... That type of stuff? Or do you like story jokes? Do you have a preference? I don't have a preference. Funny's funny. As long as it's funny. I'd imagine you probably prefer the story. Generally speaking, yeah. And that's actually why it's weird. Because one of the things I was going to say is like, this past 10 days, I watched like 25 comedy specials. There are very few jokes that I can actually remember. Yeah. But I can fucking remember sketches from the Chappelle show. I can remember stupid stuff on SNL. I can remember even things that happened on sitcoms. They weren't. The sitcom stuff especially, they weren't particularly funny, but for some reason I remember them. But I'll watch a comedy special, I was like, that was good, that was funny. But I can't even, like, remember a specific joke. Yeah. Do you, like, remember a lot of stuff? Not off the top of my head often. Is that what makes it stick in your head? Like, after you've just watched a special, he's like, oh, that joke was funny, or that joke was funny, or that bit was funny. There's sometimes certain things that'll stick with me because it hits home really hard. But sometimes it's, if, if it's really funny, I'll listen to it over and over and over again. Oh, okay. Like certain specials, like I've actually got a handful of specials that I have on my phone because I used to drive a lot for my last job. And so I would just listen to a stand-up special while I was driving because if I'm laughing, I'm not sleeping. There you go. That's true. <laughs> Car safety. Yeah. Ended up re-watching some stuff that I had watched before just to get ready for this recording, but there's not a lot of stuff that I would, I guess, say I would want to rewatch. Like, I rewatched a, a John Mulaney special this morning, because I like John Mulaney, but it's like, oh yeah, that, that, that just to remind me, it's like, oh yeah, he's funny, uh, but there's not too many specials that I would actually want to rewatch. Yeah. It doesn't really surprise me, because you're not really a comedy guy. Not really, No. I get my comedy from other sources. I'm not, I'm not a stand-up comedy guy. Yeah. I like comedy, but I, I, I would not say that that's not my go-to thing. Right. For whatever. I, I watch, I go through little spurts every couple of years where I'll watch a bunch of stuff all at once. But if I'm like, oh, I need a laugh, stand-up, I don't know why, but it's, it's not my go-to medium. Is, that, it's a, is it a go-to thing for you? Oh, yeah. For me, like, I don't know, once a month or so, I scavenge through all of the streaming services looking for a new stand-up special. Okay. And like, I'm out. Like I, the only ones left that I haven't watched are because they just don't look funny to me. And there's like a bunch of where I start watching it. And if they're not funny in the first five minutes, I'm like, nah, I'm not wasting my time. I've been disappointed with some specials with some of the, like the comedians that I know, the more established comedians, this isn't across the board, but lately I've noticed that their most recent stuff, eh, kind of mediocre. Yeah. Like once they get to like a certain point, it almost, I don't mean to single him out, but like Kevin Hart, his earlier stuff was funny to me. His most recent stuff, it's like, it just sounds like he's phoning it in. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just part of like, you're not hungry anymore. You're not trying to, it's like, you're going to get like, it was (laughs) like Dave Chappelle and one of his routines was talking about how like he bombed really hard someplace. It's like, 
I'm like Evil Knievel. I get paid for the attempt. I don't care if you fucking like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that comes down to what we were talking about earlier about the fear of cancel. Oh, uh, okay. And so a lot phoned it in because they were trying to dial it back and they just didn't really know how to play it right. Yeah, like Bill Burr's, like one of Bill Burr's recent ones. I was like, I didn't really find any of that uh, particularly funny. But then I like watched like one of his earlier ones and it was fucking hilarious. But you know what? So one of his most recent ones, he had honed it and figured it out in America, but then he filmed it in England. Yes, that was the one I didn't like. Exactly. And it's, I almost guarantee you didn't like it because the audience wasn't laughing. That could be. It's like, there's a weird, it's like, maybe I'm just too conditioned to take from like sitcom laugh tracks. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, if the audience is not laughing, did that make me think it wasn't funny? Right. But again, it's also been times where I was like, why are, why is everybody laughing? And I didn't really think that that was that funny. But that could be it. Cause yeah, that special was the one that was in England and yeah, that audience didn't really give him much. Yeah. I also want to shout out a person you're talking about, like people that take trauma mm -hmm. and make it funny. Josh blue. Don't think I know him. I think I saw him on Netflix. I think it was, but he's got cerebral palsy. Oh, okay. It's pretty much just a lot of like self depreciating humor. Self-deprecating humor? Yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Self-depreciating would make you worth less financially. Well, he might be doing that too. I'm not really sure. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm really tired again today. I didn't sleep well last night. Suck it up! He's hilarious. Okay. I just wanted to shout him out too. He's, I know he's been around for a while and I've, I've seen him here and there, but just recently I watched one of his specials and was like just blown away by it. He's one that I expected it to be less funny because I felt like I would be more of a pity humor, and it's not at all. I like comedians that can do that if there's, if there's something that you were expecting them to lean on as a crutch. Like fat people who do, do too many fat jokes. Yeah. Be funny. Don't lean on a crutch like we were saying earlier. Although, again, like we were also saying earlier, it's like if you found a niche and you found an audience and you're making people laugh and you're making money, stick with it. Right. If it's a fat joke that's just genuinely really funny fat jokes and you, you're just really good at fat jokes, that's one thing. But doing fat jokes just because you're a fat comedian doesn't make it funny. Is that kind of where you're going with it? Yeah, that's why I was going because there, there are certain people who get away with it's like a subgenre or, or, or I don't know what the right way to say is it. like this sort of like the I can make that joke, but you can't type of comedy like the black people who talk about racial issues is like. I'm a black comedian, so I can say this. A white comedian can't say this. I'm a fat person, so I can make fun of my fatness, but you can't because that would be wrong. And it happens not, and also across other, with uh, sexual orientation and gender identity and stuff like that. You always get into that sort of, the, the jokes that like the audience is uncomfortable, but is willing to laugh at, but it's like, well, I can make that joke, but you can't type of thing. Yeah. Which sometimes can be funny, but if, it's, if that's like their entire thing, it gets old fast. Yeah, there was, I think it was Ralphie May, maybe, that I just saw a clip from, where it comes out right at the beginning, he's like, all right, white people, look around, find the closest black person, keep your eye on them so you know whether or not you can laugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Do you have a good example of, like, what's, like, a, a good joke? Or what makes a good joke? Oh, good God. Oh, what, what, what do you, like, <laughs> what, what, well, this is a, a, a simpler question. I'm not asking you to tell me a joke. Like to you, I, I already asked you the sort of like, do you like the story jokes or the, the quick one-liners? Yeah. One of the things that I find interesting about stand-up, which I think is different than maybe other kinds of comedy, you can be, give me two minutes 
in uh, stand up can be funny. It's very hard to be funny in a very compressed period of time. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know, it doesn't have to be like the endless stream of like uh, set up punchline, set up punchline. It could be a short story or something like that. But there's a lot of other mediums where it's very difficult to be funny with a within a very short period of time. Hannibal Burris talks about that in one of his shows where he talks about like when he meets a girl or something like that. And they're like, oh, you're a stand up comedian. Make me laugh. Say something funny. It's like, yeah, it doesn't really work that way. It's a completely different thing. I think for me, the, the funniest things, again, come from truth. Exaggerated truth made funny. And it's, there's got to be a curveball. It has to be something unexpected. And a lot of times that comes with detail. Like maybe they're saying something and you're expecting him to say carrot and he says cucumber. And it's like, oh, I would never have thought cucumber. That's hilarious. Comedy from the unexpected. And I, I think when we say if it... It doesn't always have to be like social commentary or political stuff, but challenging social norms. Yeah. I think stand-up comedy, probably better than any other form of comedy, can challenge social norms and start conversations that would otherwise not be had. And that kind of leads into going back to what you're saying about a lot of comedy specials recently not being that funny. It also comes down to, I think, Trump killed it. The Trump presidency... Everybody hated Trump so much in any kind of Hollywood or or entertainment area. So many people went on anti-Trump, just bashing Trump comedy that it became not funny anymore because everybody was doing the same thing. It also was one of those things that several comedians have talked about. Oh, you guys must be thrilled with the Trump presidency. It gives you so much material to talk about. Yeah. And I think it was Patton Oswalt. I was like, it really wasn't a boon for people because it very quickly became something that nobody wanted to talk about. Like he was like saying, he's like, oh, imagine like a an 18 wheeler full of like chickens has a huge crash on the highway and runs into like a, another like giant truck full of barbecue sauce and the whole thing catches on fire. Yeah, you'll be standing along the side of the road watching it in awe. It's like if my dumbass came up and said, hey, you want me to tell you some funny jokes about this? You'd be like, fuck off. The chicken will be done on the barbecue soon. People didn't need to be told jokes about Trump or weren't interested in hearing jokes about Trump because everybody was talking about Trump, not just comedians. We're watching it. We're seeing it. We don't need your commentary or your jokes about it. So comedians were like, it it wasn't better for us. It wasn't even like low-hanging fruit or easy pickings. It's like no one fucking wanted to hear about it because everybody was complaining about it. Yeah. And there were some comedians that tried it more in different ways. Like one of my favorite treatments was like John Mulaney talked about Trump by not talking about Trump. Yeah. And then people like, whoa, yo, how come you weren't complaining about, you know, the previous guy and all the bad things that he might have done? John Mulaney's like, because I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. Because the previous guy seemed like he was good at his job. And when someone seems to be good at their job, I don't pay attention. It's like if you had to get a babysitter to come to see my show tonight and you picked your mom, you wouldn't run home and check the baby monitor to see if your mom did it okay. But if you left Gary Busey home to babysit your kid, (laughs) so it's like they weren't talking about the other guy because people are paying attention now. Yeah. That's also why it's not funny because everyone's paying attention to it. Yeah. I would like to rewind to your example of the truck full of 
chickens hitting the truck full of barbecue sauce? Because that just sounds delicious to me. There's lots of jokes there. By the way, Patton Oswalt, I'm sorry, that was not the joke. Patton Oswalt <laughs> told a better joke. For whatever reason, maybe it's because I'm hungry. I turned the joke into truck full of chicken hitting the truck full of barbecue sauce and catching on fire. I don't know why. <laughs> Let's change it to a military truck full of grenades crashing into a dump truck full of babies. Okay. That's a lot more tragic where you, it's going to be hard to make that funny. Yes, I would agree. But chicken and barbecue sauce, I mean, that just, you smash that together all the time. <laughs> By one example of like appreciating a, a well-told joke that I want to end on, Jen Kirkman, who I mentioned earlier, is one of my favorite comedians. She was telling a story joke. So typically when you, th- when you listen to a comedian tell a story joke, it's like, okay, so it's not set up in punchline. You're going to take us on a little bit of a journey for a few minutes. And eventually along the way, you're going to say something funny. So she had a a bit about that she got a tattoo and she wanted to explain to us like why I got my tattoo. What was my inspiration for the tattoo and where it came from? So you're expecting the story. She's like, well, part of my inspiration was that my friend has a tattoo on the inside of her wrist of her grandfather and her grandfather's birth date. Her grandfather is a Holocaust survivor because he was a Nazi. Oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and then, like, you're like, what? <laughs> so, like, at the beginning of a story joke where you're not expecting a joke. So you're just expecting, like, oh, my inspirational story was inspired by my friend who has this, you know, tattoo of her grandfather who is a Holocaust fire. So you think, oh, inspirational. Your story's probably going to be stupider. But then she hits you with a, yeah, he survived the Holocaust because he was a Nazi. You know, like, whoa. So you laugh. You weren't expecting a punchline. You also laugh uncomfortably. (laughs) Ooh, Holocaust joke? That's not funny. (laughs) A very similar one was, yeah, my grandpa died in World War II. He fell off a guard tower. (laughs) She goes on to say that was a joke my friend's grandfather actually is a Holocaust survivor. <laughs> but it's just like, again, if you've ever seen Jack Kirkman, she had, she's not completely deadpan, but she's not very animated. So it's just, it just catches you by surprise. It's just like, yep, you're sliding into a story joke and then you get hit with a punchline joke that's also an uncomfortable joke about something you're not supposed to make fun of. The other thing that I'm amazed that we have not talked about that maybe we should end on as I think is one of the hallmarks of all good stand-up comedy, the callback. Oh, yeah. Like, almost all good stand-up comedy routines and stand-up comedians find a way to wrap everything together. Yeah. Especially when you go to the story ones. Yes. Yeah, it, it always ends on a callback to the beginning. And gee, it might not either be a callback to the beginning, or just, even if it was like an earlier, like, this simple setup punchline joke... Coming back and, and bringing that punchline back up again. Yeah. Or finding a way to bring it back because then you start to, it's like, oh yeah, you're reminding people about the other funny thing that you said earlier and you tied that stuff together. Also, sometimes the callbacks catch you by surprise. Yeah. But it usually does a good job of tying stuff together. There are also a lot of comedians that tell much longer drawn out story jokes and the jokes are usually the callbacks to earlier parts of the story and stuff like that. The best ones will call back to every major joke they made in like one sentence. 
that like reminds you of why the show was good. And then you end up leaving the special with like, oh, there was a whole bunch of funny stuff that they talked about this, this, and other thing. And but I am glad you brought up Nazis because Nazis are always funny. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Fanboy and the Hater. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating. Write a review. Reach out to us on Twitter at Fanboy and Hater. Email us at thefanboyandthehater at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on our website, fanboyandhater.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Where you can download the free Podbean mobile app for Android and iOS. You can also find us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. Once again, thanks for listening to The Fanboy and the Hater.